Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Partly Political Broadcast, episode 52. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and as former Chancellor of the Exchequer and Eugene Toomes stunt double George Osborne has now become the editor of the Evening Standard newspaper, I would like to announce my new job as editor of monthly magazine Parking Review. Now you're probably thinking that I have no experience of journalism nor am I a parking specialist, but I'll have you know Trump supporting trolls in social media are constantly saying I'm stuck in my safe space so I think I'm made for the job. Yes, it turns out destroying the entire British economy is high on the what employers want list, as George Osborne now has six jobs in some sort of desperate attempt to ensure that even post-cabinet he can keep taking jobs away from hard-working people. A big criticism is that Osborne has received the job despite lack of journalistic experience, but with all the quantitative easing he did as Chancellor to help bankers, he's pretty capable of printing lots of paper that's completely devoid of usefulness for most people. Considering how upset many are about Gideon's new job, it seems in both the economy and the standard, Osborne is pivotal in lowering interest rates. Apart from George Osborne, who'll probably balance being an MP and an Evening Standard editor, investment manager at BlackRock, public speaker for Washington Speaker Bureau, Kissinger fellow, Northern Powerhouse chairman and lead inspiration for the TV series V, by being massively shit at all of them and then writing a terrible editorial about it, the rest of the Conservative Party weren't having a fun week last week. Chancellor Philip Hammond may soon be looking for a new job too, after you turning on his budget policy to increase national insurance contributions for the self-employed just a week after he announced it. By going back on this policy, it now leaves a £2 billion funding debt in the budget plan, a black hole that needs filling with something more than Hammond's grey head as he tries to find somewhere to bury it. Maybe the Evening Standard can do one of their fundraising schemes. Who knows? Meanwhile, the Electoral Commission have fined the Conservatives £70,000 after an investigation mainly started by Channel 4 showed that they failed to declare nearly £300,000 in campaign spending. Eleven police forces have referred Conservative MPs to the Crown Prosecution Services, which could cause the overturning of election results or more by-elections, which is good, as otherwise the Conservatives' main concern over the Electoral Commission's seventy grand fine would have been what petty cash notes to pay it with. Secretary of State for exiting the European Union, David Davis, told a parliamentary panel on Brexit that there was no government plan if they get no deal from the EU. He suspected tariffs would raise on food, drink and things that non-lizard people need and had no clue about passporting rights for businesses or EU health cards for British citizens travelling or living there. 
I bet David Davis likes to tell his family he's treating them to a mystery trip, gets them all in the car, drives them into the middle of nowhere and then blames them for not knowing where they were going or packing provisions when they get horribly lost. But it doesn't matter now, as Theresa May's spokesperson informed press that Article 50 will be triggered on March the 29th in line with the Ice Queen's long-term plans of destroying Spring and eventually killing Aslan. Across the pond, hate given President Trump had his all-new, not-at-all improved travel ban blocked by a Hawaiian judge, prompting many of Donald's supporters to exclaim online that they should send all refugees to Hawaii, which is by far the nicest thing they've ever said. Yeah, after escaping a war zone and being subject to such prejudice, they probably could use a luxury holiday. You're right. Meanwhile, Trump refused to shake Angela Merkel's hand during his meeting with the Chancellor of Germany because we all know he has tremendous respect for women. Merkel apparently read a Playboy interview with Trump from 1994 in order to prepare for the meeting. Makes sense. I mean, what other publication would give you such in-depth knowledge on dealing with a massive fake boob? Oh, and the Labour Party are infighting again, but I guess at least they're trying to be in opposition against someone, eh? I mean, even if it is sadly themselves. Again. So, here I am, episode 52, and there you are, still listening like bloody champs, undeterred by me having to record last week's show under an unfeasibly warm duvet in the northeast. Well, this week's show has no duvet-related content, although, as per usual, the political climate is full of sheets, and it appears for many people they're having to get in a bed that someone else made a massive mess in. So... Anyway, there's a very, very exciting guest on this week's show. But before all of that, I have to say a big thanks to Olivia, uh, who donated to the Kofi page at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro, and Daniel, who became a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro. And if any of you would like to head to those pages and throw some dosh my way, it'll mean I can avoid unnecessary feather down recording studios for the near future, which would be great. Um, I've finally sorted out when I'm going to be recording a video for the Patreon, which it turns out is on March the 29th. Yep, yeah, there you go, same day as the Article 50 triggering. So yeah, two era-changing happenings in one day that with both a large amount of people didn't want. Also, uh, if you do donate to the Kofi account, uh, John, who donated last week, had his donation held. Oh, this is so funny. He had it held for several days because he'd mentioned he liked the ISIS joke, uh, the ISIS so good they named it twice one that I did about Trump uh, a couple of episodes ago. And PayPal thought that he might be a threat because he'd written that in the email. Because, you know... Uh, the main way that these terror attacks are organised is through messages on donations to obscure podcasts, obviously. So feel free to donate to the Kofi website mentioning various offensive or concerning terms and we'll see just how good the MI5 or CIA are. I mean, that way it's not only useful to me, but it's very useful to the safety of our society. Or, you know, a great way to get us all arrested. But hey, we'll all be in it together. Right, uh, other admin this week. Um, the hashtag Tripod Initiative, that's T-R-Y-Pod, um, seems to be working uh, for this show anyway. It's been nice. Lots of people recommend us. Really lovely. Thank you if you have done. Um, so if you'd like to recommend this show to other people, please do. Uh, and if you're on Twitter, why not stick the hashtag Tripod hashtag on it? Uh, I've said hashtag twice. There's a lot of hashtags going on. Um, and it can join in with March being the month where we're trying to get more listeners to the world of podcasts. Um, to join in, I think I should be part of it as well. Uh, my Tripods for this week are lots of podcasts which I've been on and also one which I wish I was on because I love it so very much. Um, the first is the Lolitics podcast which is political comedian Chris Coltrane's monthly podcast of his live shows in Camden. Uh, I'm on a fair few of those. They're always really good. Um, also the Box Set Pod where they discuss various TV shows um, and again I've been on that quite a few times um, but the most recent one which I haven't listened to yet is on Girls and I presume that's the telly show and not just an hour of confused men uh, but it's always great fun. Um, also also, Worst Foot Forward, which is very funny comedian Ben Vandervelt's podcast about the worst ever thing 
in uh, that week's category. Um, the week that I was on, it was all about protests, and they've had tons of much better comedians on there as well. Um, and very lastly, The Bugle, which hopefully you'll listen to anyway, uh, it is the granddaddy of political comedy podcasts. Uh, it is now without John Oliver, but Andy Zaltzman uh, just by himself, and instead he gets uh, excellent, excellent guests to fill the gap. Um, and Andy's wonderfully surreal political humour has constantly made me laugh for many, many years. So do check that out. Um, also, on the subject of podcasts, uh, if you like, please, please vote for this show in the British Podcast Awards Listener's Choice category. I'm fairly sure it won't win, but Stranger Things have happened. And so uh, season two of Stranger Things is also going to happen. So, you know, I sort of feel like, well, I may as well ask. Um, head to BritishPodcastAwards.com forward slash vote and pop partly political broadcast in the box. And you never know, I might win whatever it is that you can win. I haven't even haven't even checked. It's probably just an overly warm duvet, knowing my luck. Oh, and please do give the show a review on iTunes or Stitcher or just in some fancy skywriting over a football stadium, if you like. Uh, last thing, I always forget to mention this. Uh, it's because it's a me thing. It's not a podcast thing, so it always feels a bit wrong. But if you fancy hearing me do stand up live in your ears straight from my face, which is sort of what this is, but, you know, it's not live, um, then join my mailing list, which is at www.tnanddoyeb.co.uk. How do you spell that? Have a guess. Throw some words into Google. It's generally more vowels than you'd expect. Um, and if you go to that website on the contact page or at the bottom of any page, uh, it's got a sign up thing. Um, and I only send them out once a month or more often if there's something specific and last minute to let you know about and I fill them with nonsense links that you probably don't want and any good gigs that I'm doing Uh, I could really do with four more subscribers just so it creates a really nice rounded number and an unnecessary part of my psyche that I don't understand can feel minutely calmer so please get on that Uh, Right, okay, so very exciting. On this week's show, I am speaking to multi-gold medal winning Paralympics champion, campaigner and crossbench peer, the amazing Tani Gray-Thompson. I'm so very chuffed to have her on the show and I asked her all about disability rights and sports investment and what exactly peers do and she gave brilliant answers to all of those things. So I'm really excited to bring that to you this week. Um, Also, there is, of course, some Trump stuff, some Brexit stuff. A look at how the Netherlands told a far-right replicant to fuck right off and the return of the question of the week finally but first there is of course as always this so it seems the Conservative Party are guilty of failing to declare £275,813 of spending on their 2015 election campaign you know the one they won proving that whole phrase about cheaters completely wrong They also failed to keep their records for explaining the amounts they invoiced to three 2014 by-election candidates because, you know, it's so hard when you're a main political party with proper resources to not just delete an Excel spreadsheet or not find a shoebox to stuff all those receipts in. Yeah, I am assuming that they do their expenses like I do mine, so, you know, judge away, but I've definitely never lost a whole batch of them, so maybe I should give the Tories some tips. So, this lack of records and failure to declare expenses contravenes three political parties elections and referendum act codes and the electoral commission states that 118,124 pounds of the amount was recorded incorrectly as party spending rather than individual candidate spending do you remember the 2015 conservative battle bus the big blue mega bus that had a better future for you your family and britain on one side a hilariously incorrect message with hindsight and vote for change on the other promising that that's all you'd have in your pockets if you voted for them remember that 
Well, yeah, that was a party bus used to promote individual candidates. Bit dodgy. So the Electoral Commission concluded that there was a realistic prospect that this enabled those individual candidates to gain financial advantage over opponents, because nothing swings voters like a big blue bus, which in the seat Farage was aiming for in South Thanet probably would have swayed several of his voters, because let's face it, I doubt they required much persuasion about anything. Eleven police forces have submitted files to the Crown Prosecution Service, and Tory Treasurer Simon Day has been referred to Scotland Yard, and not in a good, hey, why doesn't he do your accounts coppers way? You know, of course, the Conservatives say that it's all administrative error, an excuse that they also used in 2008 when they registered £47,000 in donations from the teenage daughter of a foreign arms dealer, and in 2015 when Northampton Conservatives failed to register £10,000 of donations for MP David McIntosh's election fund. May keeps reminding us that we shouldn't trust Labour with the economy, but it seems you can't trust the Conservatives with admin, which is far, far more damning, because even I can do admin and I keep my receipts in a shoebox. So we'll have to wait and see what happens, but it is a pretty big deal if the Conservatives were misusing funds to give them an electoral advantage. If it turns out to be deliberate, then that could be 11 seats up for by-elections or a sudden general election. Then again, it could be all, as BBC political reporter Laura Kunzberg tweeted, election expenses mistakes. You know, sure, just like the Bernie Madoff mistake or the Enron mistake. Do you remember those famous mistakes? In fact, if any of you don't mind me making the odd mistake, do send your credit card details to the usual addresses and I'll endeavour to make lots of mistakes using your account. While I have no idea where to begin with the story that former Chancellor of the Exchequer George Osborne is now editor of the Evening Standard, I know that due to his total lack of journalistic experience, he wouldn't know where to begin either. Evgeny Lebvedev, the Russian oligarch who owns the Independent, the completely unwatched because it looks like it was filmed on a camera your dad bought in 1992, London Live, and the Evening Standard, has announced George as the new editor of the latter, replacing Sarah Sands, a mate of Boris Johnson and someone whose name sounds like a warning that a theatre is on fire. Perhaps this is a tale about how anyone can do anything regardless of skill, you know, as long as they're insanely rich. Or maybe it's an investigative piece on how karma is dead. But while I'm curious as to whether Osborne's editing style will have the paper overrun with uppercase while lowercase goes neglected, most of it in the gutter and loads and loads of white lines all over the place and special sections of the paper that you can roll up to use on the white lines on various other pages or whether it's right that the only paper that ruins the idea of a free press now has an even more obvious political bias than it already had when it backed Zach Goldsmith's mayoral campaign despite it being more dog whistle than a sheepdog trial championships. But... Actually, the biggest issue right now is that George Osborne is still an MP, as well as now being editor for the Evening Standard. I mean, is it remotely possible for him to edit the Standard, manage investment at BlackRock, give speeches in Washington, and then somehow remember that the people of Tatton, his constituency, exist? I mean, to be fair, Osborne often looks like he's on the sort of drugs that would make all that seem possible. To be even more fair, the people of Tatton probably weren't sure what he did for them in the first place. There are three investigations into Osborne's new job conflicting with his old one. One by the Committee and Standards on Public Life, one by the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards, and one into the Whitehall body that approves jobs for ex-ministers. In Parliament, Osborne said that his job as Evening Standard editor would enhance Parliament, an ill choice of words considering past drug stories about him. A number of Conservative MPs backed him, including Sir Oliver Letwin, who pointed out that no one complained when Osborne was an MP at the same time as being Chancellor of the Exchequer. Yeah, but mate, headline, look how that ended up. Look, here's my hot take. As Osborne doesn't have any experience in doing it, it's up to those investigations to thoroughly check the proof. 
In a way, it's lucky Theresa May is in politics rather than, say, you know, game shows, because her catchphrases would really not do well there. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, you know what they say, Brexit means... And now to add to that is May's new catchphrase of, Now is not the time. May used it several times over the weekend to show that she would reject a second Scottish independence referendum before Brexit, saying that now is not the time, ignoring that, to be fair, they probably wouldn't have it right now, as these things do take a little while to organise. I mean, you've got to get a lot of pencils together. They can't all be rushed through like the Brexit one. May's reasoning is that it would be unfair to the people of Scotland that they would be being asked to make a crucial decision without the information they need to make that decision. Now, before you fall off your chair laughing, either this is so self-aware from May and it means that there's some sort of level of learning that's actually happened from Brexit, or as is more likely, the more I realise people really aren't that capable of self-awareness often, Theresa May is completely unaware of the hypocrisy of trying to get Scotland to avoid a referendum on a union based on lack of information as we leave a union due to a vote based on a lack of information. May hasn't ruled out a referendum after Brexit, though, and First Minister for Scotland Nicola Sturgeon has said that they are prepared to wait. So, great choice for Scotland if they wait for Brexit to happen. They either stay in a union that doesn't listen to them and has made decisions that they wouldn't, that they now have to stick by, or leave and still be out of the European Union and now with even less stuff than before. Scottish Parliament vote this week on whether they should have a second referendum or not. If they vote for one, then as Nicola Sturgeon told the SNP conference last week, Scotland's future is in Scotland's hands, which is a fairly strong catchphrase, especially compared to the Prime Minister's. Then again, maybe I'm being unfair, and maybe when Theresa May said, now is not the time, it was far more self-aware than I'm giving any of it credit for, and it just meant that now is actually not the time, because it's a lot more like pre-1707 when Scotland was its own country, because Brexit didn't mean anything to them then. So this week's interview is a bit of a different one, as I usually, as you know, if you listen to the show often, uh, I usually talk to someone about one specific issue for ages and ages. However, Baroness Tani Gray-Thompson, this week's guest, is so actively involved with so many campaigns and so many areas of politics that I felt that I had to ask her about a number of issues. As I'm sure many of you will know, uh, Tani has had an incredible career in wheelchair racing, winning 11, yes, 11 Paralympic gold medals and two World Championship golds, as well as many other silvers and bronzes that, considering how me and Tani talk about medals in the interview, I should probably mention them all, but I really don't have time. I mean, basically, look, if things get really difficult after Brexit with the economy, she can probably melt them all down and bail us all out. She was made a dame in 2005, retired from sport in 2007 and then was made a life peer in the House of Lords in 2010 and Tani was named one of the 100 most powerful women in the UK by Radio 4's Women's Hour. Tani has sat on the board for the National Disability Council, the Sports Council, the Mission 2012 panel for the Olympics and Paralympics and the English Lottery Awards panel and she's currently on the board for the London Marathon, Transport for London, the London Legacy Development Corporation, UK Active and is the patron for so many charities I feel like we should set up some sort of sponsorship donation page so that she can have a weekend off. I'm not saying that I'm too unhealthy to speak to such a champion sportswoman, but just reading through the list of all the important areas Tani is involved in makes me feel exhausted. She's a very inspirational person indeed. So I was honoured, yes, absolutely honoured to have Tani agree to let me chat to her on a very, very rare spare hour that she had. 
As you can probably hear in my questions, uh, I'd remember every now and then that I've watched Tanny on the TV since I was a teenager and would completely mess up what I was saying. So apologies for the odd incoherent sentence, um, but all of Tanny's answers are absolutely fascinating and wonderfully clear. Um, also, I promise I didn't mean to talk about Brexit much, but of course it barged its way in like Boris Johnson at a Japanese school children's rugby match. Anyway, much is discussed and so I'm very, very pleased to bring this chat to your ears. Do enjoy. Cool. Hi, Tani. Um, thank you so much uh, for uh, being on the podcast. It is an honour to have, I think you're the first gold medalist and baroness I've had on the podcast. So thank <laughs> you very much. Um, thank you. Yeah, well, it's, it's great to have you here. And, and you've done, well, you campaign on so many important issues and you do so much. Uh, so I've got a lot of questions for you, but I thought we'd start on uh, some of your work uh, that you do with dis- uh, disability rights. Um, and on Monday, uh, disability rights campaigners from across Britain uh, presented some reports to the UN Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Um, and it's been about eight years since the UK supported that committee. So how how do you think the UK is doing with sort of complying with rights of persons with disabilities and the Equalities Act? Are we doing OK? Ugh, right. <laughs> that's a great noise to start with. But... That's a really good question to get started with. Um, so it's it's really hard at the moment. So, you know, for, for a lot of people, to be honest, you know, austerity and all that. And, um, you know, over the last few years, there's been... Um, a, a lot of challenges to funding and supporting disabled people. And um, United Nations uh, issued a report on disability. And the conclusion of that was that the UK government and its austerity, austerity policies have systematically violated the rights of disabled people. And, you know, the government's obviously not very happy with that. Um, the Work and Pension Secretary Damien Green says that the report's patronising and offensive. Um, and, and it's going to keep going on. And one of my work colleagues, Baroness Jane Campbell, who, who works solely within disability rights, um, she sat on a House of Lords Select Committee, which was reviewing the Equality Act. And that made 55 recommendations to address what they felt were the inadequacies. So that's a lot of inadequacies yeah. um, in the Equality Act. So, you know, although lots of things have got better for disabled people and and, you know, back in the... 90s I, I kind of thought an equality act was the answer to it all rather than having um you know disability discrimination act and uh legislation around women and black and minority ethnic people um actually the equality act hasn't sort of taken things as far forward as i'd hope for disabled people because it kind of gets lost a bit in 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 other parts so it's it's really difficult you know we're seeing a lot of disabled people we're having their support cut who are really struggling to, to live financially. Um, and that's not kind of really how I want it to be. You know, I, I, I don't want people to be cheating the benefit system and claiming money that they're not meant to claim. But neither do I want, you know, disabled people living in abject poverty and and almost isolated and stuck back in. Well, actually, a lot of people, you know, are really worried they're going to be stuck in in um, group care homes. Which, which is not where we, we should be as a society. You know, we should be doing more to um, to help and support people and give them the opportunity to, uh, you know, be the best they can. And Disability Benefits Consortium, they did the survey as well. It said that nearly 70% of disabled people said their health would suffer if their benefits were cut. And actually, that's just going to cost more money in the long run. And one of the, the problems, issues, sometimes a good thing about working in politics is, you know, the Commons thinking five-year cycles the House of Lords thinks 
about things for the next 30 years. So I guess that's some of the, the issues we have to deal with in terms of trying to balance it all out. Sure. I, I, that's interesting you mentioned about the Equalities Act. Is that a, a case of by lumping everything in together, nothing gets enough time, as it were? You know, it's a kind of all equalities, but actually, you know, for issues like disability rights or for black and minority ethnic rights, you need almost a committee to specifically focus until we can get more of a balance with things. Um, there are there are subcommittees as part of um, Equality and Human Rights Commission. But actually, I think around disabled people, we're sort of just sort of playing catch up. So, you know, people know there are a whole pile of words you can't use around black people and, and women. And um, but that's still not as understood around disabled people. And, you know, so, you know, people do say things like crippled and handicapped and, you know, things which are just outdated. And I mean, do you know, I mean, I was on a train last week and really small step to get off. Someone turned up with a ramp, which was great because that doesn't always happen. And I said, oh, no, I don't need the ramp. I can just jump off the train. I can just pull a wheelie, jump off. And the person on the platform said, you know, well, you, you can't decide how you get off the train. You, it's not safe. And I said, well, it is safe. No, it's not. You, you can't decide whether it's safe or not. You can't choose. And I said, wow. well, you, you haven't said that to every single person who's just walked off the train. But just because I'm in a chair, you've assumed I've got no capacity to make a decision. And, and that's where some things have moved backwards which I think is really difficult because there's still a bit of a view that if you're disabled, you should be sort of, you know, put in a home. And I've, I've got a 15-year-old daughter, which brings many challenges. Um, we, we went out for dinner the other week and, you know, we we're only in kind of a, you know, a sort of a fast foodish sort of restaurant. And um, the person at the, you know, where you wait for the table at the front, I said, oh, yeah, we've got a table booked for Thompson. And they spoke to my daughter and I said, no, 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 I've got a table booked for Thompson. And I spoke to my daughter Wow! and, and Karen said, you know, uh, you know, speak to my mum. You know, I'm, I'm 15. I'm not in charge of anything. So people would rather speak to my 15 year old daughter than speak to me. And if, if I experience those things um, and, and luckily I'm either known as an ex-athlete or I'm known as a parliamentarian or because I do a bit on telly or something. What are disabled people who have no no ability to stand up for themselves what what do they experience and it's it's generally a lot worse and and that's kind of why i keep going because I've, I've been hugely fortunate i've had loads of opportunities in my life and that's what i want for every disabled person i don't want disabled people to experience discrimination and bullying and and to be told that people like you can't make a decision yeah that's i mean so i i saw you tweet about the the train thing which is uh, horrific and also i have to say your daughter is amazing for not being a 15 year old thinking wow i'm in charge for once and just uh, ordering <laughs> everything off the menu you you she's amazing um but do you think there's there's also a disconnect because uh, obviously there's there's the kind of patronizing of disabled people thinking they can't make decisions but then the government is also suggesting people are fit for work when they aren't and cutting money for carers um you know, do you think this is, I mean, I suppose the main thing is, I guess people with disabilities should probably be more involved in policy making and in some of the areas. Or why do you think there's such a kind of, you know, contrast? I mean, bizarrely, in the House of Lords, there's quite a lot of disabled people, which is really good. But but there's not enough disabled people as part of different decision making processes. And, and one of the things I suggested a couple of years ago was around disability assessments for personal independence payment. I said to the government, you should employ disabled people to do it because disabled people are quite good at spotting what other disabled people can or can't do compared to what they say they can or can't do. And um, I think they thought I was 
kind of teasing them. I wasn't. I was actually being really serious. And and my big concern, um, and we've done well for reform bills and legal aid and, and various bits of legislation. And where I see the problem is, is a real difficulty in the decision-making process. There's lots of decisions that are wrongly made. So for something like personal independence payment, if you don't, if you don't, you're, you're deemed not to qualify, you then go through a mandatory consideration, then appeal and tribunal, and 60-odd percent of those get overturned. And to me, the, the cost of those reconsiderations, appeal, tribunal, are huge. So if you make better decisions in the first place, and, and we're really clear whether people should or shouldn't get the support, you'd, you'd actually save money. At the moment, no money's being saved because the system just doesn't work properly. Um, and I think it's just much fairer to people to to have that decision i mean I've, I've i've got an inbox full of emails from people saying it's taken two years it's taken two and a half years their notes have been lost um you know what they said in the meeting is not what's been reflected in the report and frankly that's that's not good enough and you know if the government want to save money i think there's loads of ways they can save money it's just hard um, and 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 changing that decision making processes would be really difficult, but I kind of think they can do it. They they just need to uh, have a bit of confidence and and step up a little bit. Sure, I mean it's sort of I suppose a case of because I think there was the recent talks of cutting lots of PIP benefits uh, in order to change procedures, but you sort of feel like that's not like don't change it to, by cutting people off. There's got to be a, a a better way of implementing things to improve, you know, that don't require, I think it was 160,000 people were going to lose their uh, benefits or something. That was the, the claim. Um, and and, it's, and it's, it's the money it costs through NHS, through carer support, you know, it, it's never a saving. It's just that money and usually more money gets spelt, spent somewhere else. So um, joined up government is what we want, but that's, um, yeah, that, that's quite hard to do. Get the government departments to talk to each other. Oh, I, yeah, I bet. I bet it's a, it's a whole that needs a whole system reform as well. I assume. Um, it's a, I mean, yeah. there was there was a little bit of money promised to social care in the budget, um, but as far as I sort of know, that isn't as enough that's needed. Do you think that's a, a, a reasonable? You know, that was some attempt by the government to kind of say they're trying to improve things, or not enough. Um, no. I mean, I have to say, I'm really glad I'm not the Chancellor because <laughs> actually, find a balance of the books. It's really easy to sit on the outside and say, oh, that's not what I would have done. Um, it, I mean, the reality with health and social care is it's going to very soon, you know, be going down to local authority level, be be putting a huge responsibility on them. Local authority budgets are being cut. So they're having to make really harsh decisions. They're shutting, in some cases, sports facilities, which won't impact now, but will impact five years from now. So, um what I personally like to, I think we just need to kind of stop and say, right, okay, there's a lot of people who are experts in this. I, I still don't consider myself an expert. I'm just someone who's really passionate and, and I'm up for a fight. But, you know, there's there's lots of people who, who could help make the savings. We just have to step away from party politics. And, and you know, I'm an, I'm an independent crossbench peer. I'm not a member of a party. I, I just see the benefits of being able to step back. And I think that's, if, if I could wave a magic wand... That's what I do, because I think, you know, we've got a lot of money in this country. We're a hugely fortunate country. I just don't think we always spend it in the best places. 
So I know, I know you've just said you're, you're crossbench and you, you step away from that, but then in which case a tricky question because you, you commented last year about how uh, Brexit would probably hamper plans to boost um, sort of uh, disability benefits such as greater access implementation, I think you mentioned. Um, I, I hate asking everyone the Brexit question. It's so divisive. But now that the Article 50 bill has been passed, do you are you worried that it's still going to hamper those sorts of benefits um i mean it's not something that's even remotely come up in i mean not that anything's really come up and so what's going to be <laughs> happening when we go but uh you know is that something you're con- still concerned about yeah a brexit is a gift that just keeps giving um <laughs> for comedians uh, yes and <laughs> not for anyone yeah, else <laughs> um, i i voted remain for for many reasons part of it was around disability rights legislation you know part of it is about you know I, I think in terms of the overview that Europe can have, and, and it's it's not all positive, but I think it's more positive than, than negative. I mean, I think the reality is nobody really knows what triggering Article 50 does. I mean, there's there's lots of serious experts who, 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 who don't really know what it's going to bring. I, I think it is going to be difficult because I think one of the saddest things I've experienced is I've had quite a few emails from people saying... So when are we going to get the 350 million a week into the NHS? And I've had to write back, I mean, to as many as I can and say, you know, that was not part of the referendum question. It wasn't leaving you get 350 million, you know, but but there's a number of people who, who genuinely thought that money existed. It doesn't exist. It was never going to come to the NHS. It was. Um, so, so what my disappointment with the whole referendum was, it was really hard to get information. It was a very both sides ran it ran a negative campaign. People voted for lots of different reasons. Um, and I think probably what it does highlight, and I've been saying this for years, is there's a disconnect between Westminster and, and outside London. You know, London is not the same as the rest of the UK. I live in the northeast of England. Um, Westminster is not the real world. You know, I, I work in this beautiful historic building. We have gold everywhere. You know, we have hand-printed wallpaper. It's a listed building. You know, there's it, it's beautiful. That is not the real world. And it's sometimes too easy for people to forget it and, and to not engage and not, you know, go and talk to people. And one of the things we do in the Lords, we have an outreach programme. Uh, there's a huge group of us that go to school to talk to young people about voting and politics. And I mean, and none of it's party political, but we, we try to encourage young people. They, they all have a view. They just don't know how to articulate it. And we try and help guide them to say, these are the things that you can do to make a difference. And I think for me, Brexit was... On, on lots of levels, people were just a bit bit fed up um, and and we're all going to have to deal with the consequences. So as much as I voted Remain and I, I voted against the government on a couple of, of the amendments, I, I now think that they, they have to get on with it. I, I would have preferred it a soft Brexit than a hard Brexit. don't really know what that means, but I, I just think the next couple of years are going to be really difficult and we, we probably didn't need them to be as hard as, as they're going to be. Sure. I mean, was, is, was there, I mean, were or are there specific EU uh, kind of implemented uh, disability rights that, that we now might be, is, you know, is that a specific area that, that could go? Uh, because, I mean, the EU covers so many things. Was that another area that obviously will have to be dealt with in the Great Repeal Bill or whatever? But what was it that they covered that could could now go from the from UK disability rights? Well, it, it's things like sort of if you look historically, um, British Sign Language was an official language in Europe way before it was accepted in the UK. I think it was only accepted in the UK in, in 2003. 
and it still doesn't have the same status as say Welsh or Gaelic and um you know it's things like that that it, it's having the overview that's made a difference now human rights is is sort of a slightly separate to the EU but you know when you, you hear people say oh so you know human rights you know it's it's two words that are really badly used well, what, what's human rights done for us? Well, it's the working time directive. There's, it's, it's, it's lots of protection that it's given people in terms of, you know, working rights, pension, all those things that are not insurmountable, but it's legislation that we don't, uh, there's lots of legislation that we don't have in the UK. And so we're going to have to make some decisions about what we do. Do we accept the European legislation and then amend it later down the track? We, we can't, I, I don't see how we can do legislation, all the stuff we haven't got. We can't do it one by one because that'll be 10 years of clogging up Parliament when the government will want to be putting things through as well. So, you know, when people say, oh, well, you know, we're out of Europe, we'll be away from their control. That's not going to happen in the next two years. I don't think it's going to happen in the next 10 years. It's going to take a really decent length of time to un to unravel it all. And we might end up with actually legislation because we were part of it, you know. Mm. It wasn't all legislation that was done to us. You know, Britain, you know, played a role in deciding it. We might end up with legislation that's really similar to what's in Europe. So, um, and you know what? Politics is going to be interesting in the next 10 years. It is, isn't it? I, it is. I, yeah. try, I try and keep positive because you, you kind of have to. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And it's, I, I think it'll probably be, uh, I hope, a relief to our listeners to know that a peer also is as panicky about it all as we are, as, as, but in a positive way. You know, you, you have as little idea as we do, which is is kind of reassuring. I think uh, a lot of people at the moment are going, what's going on? But if they also think everyone else thinks, you know, uh, those in, in actually in the House of Lords and House of Commons similarly going, what's going on? I don't know, is that reassuring? It's probably less reassuring, actually, isn't it, in a way? Um, who knows? <laughs> what I do think is there's lots of incredibly bright people who are way brighter than me in both the Lords and the Commons who will want to get this right. And, you know, what I did, so I've got access to the amazing library research and, you know, articles and papers. And I found it hard to make a decision. And so I don't think that there's a whole debate about whether we should have had the referendum or whether, you know, people un understood what the referendum was. People will say, yes, they did. People will say, no, they didn't. So a referendum is a really blunt tool and it's not as simple as yes or no. And, and that, but that's what it gives you. So there'll be ends up being probably 90% of people, that's a totally made up figure in my head, but who, who it won't be quite what they thought it was going to be, but, but that's a referendum, you know, and we, we've, uh, country have, have made their choice. What I do hope will come out of it is that the people who didn't vote will, will think about voting because, um, I, I absolutely understand why people feel a bit disconnected and don't want to vote again for those reasons. But but I hope they'll think of casting their vote because actually that's that's really important. But whatever their view, people should get out and vote. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We'll be back with Tani in a minute, but first, there's been some stuff going on in that their world. I know. Hardly Global Broadcast. It seems having a populist with stupid hair in America isn't a great advert for having one of those anywhere else. Last week in their general election, the Netherlands shunned now, I guess, unpopulist and far-right xenophobe Kurt Wilders and instead chose to re-elect centre-right leader of the People's Party for Democracy and Freedom, Mark Rutte, as their Prime Minister. Not that dissimilar to our 2015 elections with the Tories and UKIP, I guess, but I mean, the Netherlands isn't that far away and Dutch for thank you is danku, so there's bound to be some similarities, you know what I mean? But in fact, despite what a lot of British press suggested, Wilders was never a frontrunner, and the real story in the Netherlands wasn't the man who looked like Mr Freeze and had a love child with Doc Brown, but more that with an 82% turnout in the vote, the Dutch Labour Party went from 38 seats to just 9, a huge difference from the 2012 election. The diminishing of the red-lit area would suggest that left-wing European politics has completely plopped its clogs, especially in the Netherlands, but then the Greens took two seats, including Amsterdam, and the centrist party D66 took three. Even Mark Rutte's party, the PVV, lost nine seats, and while Kurt Wilders didn't do as well as media expected, his party did gain five seats. Dutch Labour have some lessons to learn and they're looking to give their chairman who refuses to step down a vote of no confidence. Sound familiar? And what seems most clear is that the Netherlands proportional voting system shows that there is no one national mood, that moderates are more popular than populists and actually pro-EU parties got more gains than anti-EU ones, so there'll be no Nexit anytime soon, which is pretty good for Netflix as I worry they'd have some branding confusion. Where there is concern, though, is that Huilders has already influenced national mood with his anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim rhetoric, and Rutte has expressed similar, if lesser, rhetoric himself. Again, sound familiar? It's almost as if a 45-minute flight from Southend Airport doesn't land you somewhere ideologically miles away. The hope is that with the rise of D66 and the Greens in the Netherlands, they can also influence Dutch politics. No, that doesn't sound familiar. You're right, I guess that bit comes from the Germanic part. But then, on the other hand, the fact that Dutch Labour seems to have completely died a death means that maybe the left wing can't influence the government. Yeah, you're right, that does sound familiar again. 
In France, Le Pen's ratings are not dissimilar to Wilders and his defeat in last week's election won't be great for her campaign, so it's looking increasingly like a Macron victory in May. Great news for Europe, but terrible news for making us and the US look like the worst all over again. Trust the French and the Dutch to be too cool to humour a current trend that's popular everywhere else. Bloody typical. India has also had elections recently. I know, it's almost as if the British media only deems white Western countries to be of importance. <laughs> what are they like? But it turns out that the state of Uttar Pradesh, an area so big and so populated that were it a country, not a state, it'd be the fifth biggest country in the world, it's had an election that is pretty much on par with that of Trump or Brexit in its unexpectedness. But because they Brexited ages ago, no one in the UK seems to care. The Bharatiya Janata Party, I think I've pronounced that right, I probably haven't because no one ever says it on the news here. Um, their leader, Narendra Modi, is the current Prime Minister for India, and they won 80% of the state assembly in Uttar Pradesh and an absolute majority. This is seen as overwhelming support for Modi and his policies, despite one of them being demonetising 500,000 rupee notes overnight back a few months back in November, supposedly to crack down on counterfeiting, but ultimately leaving India with severe cash shortages and many people in abject poverty, worse than they were before. Modi is a Hindu nationalist and holds little favour with the Muslim Indian population, and even more so now that he's appointed Yogi Adityanath, I'm probably, again, probably not pronounced that right, um, as Chief Minister of Uttar Pradesh. And he's someone who's made many hate speeches against Muslims, has criminal charges of rioting, attempt to murder and carrying deadly weapons, amongst others, and he thinks that anyone who opposes yoga should leave India. So, you know, pretty middle-of-the-road kind of guy. I mean, though maybe this is why Western media doesn't bother with Indian politics, because how on earth are we meant to grasp that someone can be charged for attempted murder and be so into yoga at the same time? I mean, what on earth did someone do to make him that angry? Ruin his meditation with a wet willy? Now, I have no grasp of Indian politics at all, which is probably obvious by this little bit. And I hope to get someone on the show to give us a 101 in Indian politics at some point soon. But what I do know is that son of a tea vendor and self-made man Modi is currently riding on an anti-elite and anti-liberal agenda, partly based on the corruption charges of the government before him and the huge wealth gap in the country. He's a self-made man, he's not got a great record on gender equality, he's not exactly friendly with Muslims, and he inflicts devastating policies without warning. Remind you of anyone? Though the major difference, to be fair, is that it took Modi nine years to get a visa into America, and that's something Trump would probably be quite happy with. And while Modi has admiration for Trump, he seems more than willing to fix connections with China in order to bring back more global manufacturing to India. And now Uttar Pradesh was an utter whitewash against his opponents, Modi can pretty much do what he likes until the elections in 2019, which it looks like he's going to win too. So is India safe in his hands? Uh, I don't know, but judging by the pictures, they're a lot bigger than Donald Trump's. So we'll just have to wait and see. And speaking of ulcer with a wig, President of America Donald Trump, uh, the week started with MSNBC saying someone had leaked Donald Trump's tax returns from 2005 to them, but only 2005 and nothing else. And it didn't happen to contain anything too exciting, despite hopes that it'd be full of fines paid directly to Putin for every time Trump had said something he did was great in Vlad's presence. Trump had written off $100 million in business losses due to a tax loophole that he used in the 1990s and overall paid 25% tax rate, which is lower than the 27.4% tax rate for someone who earns over a million dollars. But for someone who boasted during his campaign that he was smart for not paying his taxes, that's actually fairly impressive in a way that, you know, you're impressed when your cat shits in the plant pot instead of its litter tray, but at least that's better than it going on your bed like it's done for years. 
There was quite a bit of speculation that Trump leaked the files himself, as his 2005 tax return had to be cleaned for his wife Melania's citizenship application, as she needed three years of tax returns if married to an American citizen. 2003 and 2004, she submitted her own as she was single, and then in 2005, it was joint ones with Trump because they were married. So he had to play by the rules, or he probably would have had to deport her as an illegal immigrant just 12 years later. Though adversely, in fact, the largest amount of federal income taxes that Trump paid in 2005, $31 million was paid under the alternative minimum tax, which he now wants to abolish to stop wealthy Americans paying no income tax. Trump boasted after the leak that he knows more about tax than any other US president has, but I suppose that's because in order to defeat your enemy, you have to understand it. Then, the rest of the week, Donald Trump managed to make Irish tea sock Ender Kenny, who's not much loved in Ireland, look great. How? Well, because Kenny did a really good speech about how accepting America was of Irish immigrants on the day that Trump's new tram ban was meant to come in if it hadn't been blocked by a judge in Hawaii, and Trump just stood sheepishly next to him. Although, to be fair, that could have been because that wasn't quite the accent he was expecting from Kenny and probably didn't understand it. I'm not just saying that to be funny, I'm saying that because Trump quoted an Irish proverb to Kenny that said, always remember to forget the friends that proved untrue but never forget to remember those that have stuck by you. Uh, Which is quite impressive considering Trump seemed to forget to remember that that isn't from an Irish proverb at all but from a Nigerian poet so God knows what accent he was expecting Kenny to have. Then on Friday he met with German Chancellor Angela Merkel and as well as refusing to shake her hand, probably because at 5 foot 4 inches tall, Merkel's would dwarf his tiny baby mitts, Trump also insinuated that the one thing Merkel and he had in common was that Obama had wiretapped both of them, referring to when there were reports the NSA had hacked her and her advisor's phones and to Trump entirely making up that Obama ordered wiretapping for Trump Tower. Yeah, you know, that's like me saying that me and Kanye have something in common because I once dreamed I made a rap album. Oh, and the wiretapping that was supposed to have been ordered by Trump? Yeah, well, Press Secretary and Angry Baked Bean Sean Spicer said it was carried out not by the NSA, but by British GCHQ, something that brought top-secret GCHQ out of its usual spy silence to say it was utterly ridiculous. Something they'd only say if it definitely wasn't ridiculous, because, you know, they're top spies and trained like that, or more likely because it definitely, definitely was utterly ridiculous. I mean, why GCHQ would want to bother tapping him is beyond me, when they could just watch Fox and Friends and find out what Donald Trump thinks about everything anyway. Fox and Friends always sounds like a Disney film that's devoid of all morals, and at the end the good guy loses because the baddie can shout louder. Either way, Human Dust Brush and Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson is now on a diplomatic trip to the US to say sorry for saying that Trump was lying when he lied because apparently you can set up a trade deal based entirely on arse-kissing. Johnson is going to be meeting with Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway to presumably swap racist comments and creative writing tips with each other. Oh, and Trump has now played golf nine times in seven weeks, all costing the US taxpayer, and despite criticising Obama when he was president for spending a day playing golf instead of dealing with America's problems. Spicer said that Trump's golfing is different to Obama's because of how he uses the game golf to advance US interests. By that, I assume he means Donald demonstrates to his friends how all the handicaps he's giving the country will ruin its ranking as a global player. Lastly, while cutting funding to Meals on Wheels, after-school clubs, artsy environment and pretty much anything you can imagine that requires having a heart to understand why it's needed, Trump has upped the budget on nuclear weapons. He says this is because he will consider nuclear reaction if provoked. This week, he got angry at Snoop Dogg for shooting someone dressed as a Trump clown in his latest music video. Yeah, it's been great knowing y'all. And now, back to Tanny.
And, and we'll just sort of sidestep away from Brexit, and uh, but also on the uh, issue of people being enthused by things. Um, another area that you're obviously uh, uh, very uh, dedicated to is sports. Um, and there was a study last month, I believe it was, uh, by YouGov uh, that said that only about 7% of the respondents to the study uh, were inspired to take up sports after watching the Olympics, um, which is a, quite a low figure. Um, do you think... That there's uh, that that's the common case across the UK. Do you think there's we have a problem with inactivity here? We we do absolutely have a problem with inactivity. So inactivity costs Britain about twenty billion pounds a year. It's responsible for the early death of about thirty seven thousand people a year. Um, and I, I chair an organisation called UK Active. and we have a couple of conferences a year. And Simon Stevens, head of NHS England, came to our summit last year. And he stood on stage and he said, you know, it's it's diabetes, it's cancer, it's there's all these things that physical activity can help. And, you know, it's it's a bit of a miracle cure, but we, we're not good enough as we need to be uh, at how we encourage people to be active, about giving them the right steps, about motivating them in the right way. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about obesity at the moment and it's it's not just about the size of your waistline, it's about the health of your heart. So, And it's not just about what you eat, it's about how you exercise. So, I mean, this, this is another hugely complicated and, and complex area. Um, I, I was a huge supporter of, of getting the Olympics and Olympics to London in 2012. I worked on it for 10 years of my life. The games were amazing. But it's not fair to expect two weeks of an Olympics and 10 days of a Paralympics to change the world. And unless there's significant investment underneath that and and we really think about doing things differently it was never going to get everyone being physically active it would inspire sporty people to be sportier but it probably wouldn't get everyone going out and suddenly being active and you, you there were some amazing athletic performances you look at dave weir in in london mm. four gold medals absolutely stunning um uh, and the number of kids who came up to me said i want to be the next dave weir brilliant but then they realise, you know, Dave's training 12 to 15 times a week, 50 weeks of the year. Lovely in the summer, a bit miserable in the winter. And, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't suit everyone. So the, the, there's a bit of a disconnect between elite sport and, and, and what the, the public do. I've always said we're a nation. We, 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 we'd say we're a nation of sports lovers. We're a nation that loves watching big sporting events. And we're a nation of very passionate people about community events. But we don't always go out and, and, and do it. So I, I think there is an issue. And, you know, the NHS in its current format is not sustainable. We we have to think not just about PE in schools, which is two hours a week. We need to think about the other however many hours there are in a week for young people to be active, how they get to school, how they have active lessons, break times. We, we just need to be um, a bit smarter about what we're doing and and I think there is you know some really important moments that have happened in the last sort of two years where different government departments and the government are, are really recognizing being physically active is is, is hugely important um I mean the, the survey which was YouGov which you know said seven percent said they were inspired to take up sports after watching the Olympics that's about four million people you know that's all right that, that's actually probably a bit better than I thought. Yeah, that's not bad um, at all. But yeah, yeah it, it's, it's okay. Um, it, it was never going to be every single person in, in the population. We have to remember why we won the Games. So, um, I mean, I know one of the strap lines was inspire the nation, but we might have through that also inspired people 
to be artists, to be dancers, to be coaches, you know. So it's it's impossible to measure the, the impact that the games have, have had. I mean, I still get, I mean, this is in London where, you know, everyone goes around and ignores each other. <laughs> I still get several people a month coming up to me and saying, well, London was amazing. And you go, okay, so, that, so that's had an impact on just our personal um, confidence as a nation. Sure. And that, that's, that's not a bad thing to have either. But yeah, we, the short answer is, the short answer is we, we do need to do more to get people active. And the more active they are, then they might go into sport or they might just be active to be fit and healthy and have a good time and, um, you know, keep going and have a, have a great life. And, and that's where I think we need to put our concentration is on the physical activity and the elite sport will look after itself. It's, I mean, I think it also doesn't take into consideration how I, I did sit on my bum watching a lot of the Olympics, but also jumped up and cheered probably more than I normally <laughs> like normally do yeah. during that period. Like, I'm sure that was that was exercise in itself. Um, Absolutely. But you were you were saying that there have been uh, there's some sort of uh, good committees now, uh, government committees and things because I um, that are involved in kind of promoting sports because obviously there were a number of cutbacks that meant sort of school space was reduced and things like that. So. Is there now enough in, in investments in it? And uh, I know you, you mentioned to me before we started talking about a new uh, sort of campaign that you're working on, um, and that's specifically with athletes. But can you tell us a bit more about some of uh, some of the committees or some of the um, things that are coming through that are going to benefit uh, people getting into sports and those already involved in sports? Well, I've spent the last um, 14 months working on a report for the government on GT care in sport. And it's it's actually around concussion, traumatic injury, safeguarding, um, mental welfare. There's a huge remit. But a, a lot of it is around how we, once a young person is shown to be talented and gets into an elite pathway, how we guide them through and support them and educate them and what we do when they leave professional or elite sport. Because you're only a sports person for a really short part of your life if you're really lucky. So, you know, you need an education. Only about 2% of sports people earn any money. Wow. Um, Is it that low? It's it's that low. It's tiny. So, you know, there are a few sort of sports people while they're competing at Olympics and Paralympics do okay. But the vast majority are not millionaires or not, not even close. So um, it's an area I'm really interested in because sport is wonderful, but we, we need to think about how we safeguard and protect and, and guide people through the system. So that report's coming out in the next couple of weeks. Um, and, you know, there have been issues in elite sport. You know, you look at, you know, all the stuff that's gone around cycling and, and there's other sports. Um, we, we need to treat the, the sports people and the coaches and the performance directors in a different way. We've proved we can win medals. We're pretty good at that. I think we need to prove we can win medals with the GT care. Uh, and, it, and it won't have an impact on the number of medals that, that we win, but it's just actually we have more balanced people leaving the other side. And, you know, I do think we should invest money in elite sport. You know, it's, it is really important. It's good for the nation. It's good for our confidence. It's good for our standing on the world stage. It's good for soft politics. Um, and But we, we can't just assume that, that because we do well at elite level, all the rest will you know, fall beneath. I mean, if you compare the results of the England football team, you know, that doesn't stop young boys and girls wanting to play and, and, and be at the World Cup. So, you know, we, we just need to just be a bit smarter about what we do. 
Sure. Do you think there's, um, because you're saying like with some of the uh, elite sports, do you think there's a bit of an unfair preference for the ones that we we do win medals in? Because I saw that I think for the next round of Olympics uh, for 2020, sorry, that, you know, they've, they've got, I think, synchronised swimming uh, has lost investment. And I think wheelchair rugby, which is one of my favourites. So I'm gutted about that. Um, I know they don't call it murder boy anymore, but that is it's so amazing. <laughs> I love watching it. Um, but, uh, you know, like, do you think that there's a kind of, if it wins medals and it kind of boosts public uh, favour and, and support, but if it doesn't, then there's a kind of it gets ignored. Do you think that's that happens? Um, I, I would fund things slightly differently. So medals are important, but actually, I think we also have to fund opportunity. So you know, without funding sports like wheelchair rugby, we'll really struggle to exist. And without that support, they're never going to be able to get to a Paralympics and win. So. Um, I, I'd like to see the funding spread out a little bit and, um, you know, UK sport funding is for Olympic and Paralympic sports. I, I think we should be funding sports who have a chance of getting there and, and you know, j- just be a little bit more even with it. So um, the hard bit is UK sports remit was to win medals. And it was really clear. So maybe it's time for UK sports remit to change and be not just medals, but also, you know, enabling young people who play the sports just have a bit of a dream and get there because the way sport is at the minute without funding it's it's really really difficult to make it it's, it's one of those things I've always felt in that, you know, especially as a kid, you're always told it's taking part that counts, it's being active. And, and then you sort of watch things like the Olympics and you, you hear sort of uh, reporters say, oh, you didn't win the gold. What a shame. And you think, no, no, but they've they've got silver or they've just raced incredibly. You know, it's, it's always so weird that that's not an achievement unless it's winning, um, which I find very disheartening. It, it's a really hard and quite brutal world, really. So um, and I've been through it. So if you look at the way the medal table works, um, Every country in the world, apart from the USA, does it um, based on the number of gold medals and then the number of silver and then the number of bronze. The USA does it on total number of medals because they win stacks of silvers and bronzes. So they always come top of the medal table in their world. Um, but, but the reality is it's gold medals. And then it's only if there's a tie for gold do they count the silvers. And it's only if there's a tie for gold and silvers do they count the bronzes. So it's not that the medals don't count, but they kind of don't count. So I, it's it's harsh. It's really, really harsh. And I think we should be celebrating, you know, silvers and bronze. And we do, I think. But we, we you know, no, I don't, I've never met an athlete who's turned up at games not trying to win. Sure. And, you know, sometimes it's, a, it's an amazing win to get a silver and sometimes you've lost and got a silver. So there's all these different emotions and things that, that go with it. But I, I, it just comes back to, I think, I think we should be just funding to some extent, all the sports that compete at the Olympics and Paralympics to, to give them a chance. And, you know, that, that silver medalist may go on to do incredible things in their life after sport that winning the silver medal encourage them and push them to do. And I, I don't think we should forget that. You know, we shouldn't just say, well, it's not a gold, it doesn't count, because actually to the friends, the family, the supporters, the local community, doesn't matter what colour medal it is or whether they've medalled or not, it, it matters and, and we should be better at celebrating that. 
Absolutely, absolutely. No, I, I'm a huge admirer uh, of all the athletes, uh, and and not not just because I am terrible at sports, and therefore <laughs> I watch it in awe. Um, so, uh, and, and again, just uh, you do so many things. But to change tact again, um, you are a peer. You're a very very active peer. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of discussion lately about uh, whether or not the House of Lords should mess about with government's decisions, or whether or not they're relevant. Um, I should say that's mostly been from the kind of Brexiteer side of things that's complained. <laughs> um, but you know, as as someone that's that's actively appear and and constantly uh doing things as uh you're you know as as a baroness do you why do you think the house of lords is important and in fact it'd be quite interesting what do you get up to in a week because i know you're you're constantly very busy and i follow your twitter you're always doing things but what does a peer do i I think a lot of people are perhaps concerned as to what what you do (laughs) do you know that is a really really important question because most people don't know what we do i mean it wasn't taught in the school I went to. Um, my parents talked about politics, but um, the, in really simple terms, we are not there to run the country. Um, we're appointed, not elected. So lots of people will say that's not democratic because we're also appointed for life. Um, we're appointed because of our expertise. So I went in to do disability rights and sport, and that's what I was told that I needed to concentrate on because there was a gap in in, in the chamber for people working in those areas. And, and really, it's it's our job to say to government, are you really sure this is what you want to do? Go away and have another think about it. And, you know, there's some things we can only send back three times. There's some things that we can send back more. Um, but, but it's really simple. You know, the public vote for an MP, that chooses who the government is, depending on which party it is, they choose who the prime minister is. And we're kind of the bit on the side that says, go on, have another think about it. Um, and the way... Some of us voted in Brexit. We, we were never going to stop the bill because that's that's not our job. If it was going to be stopped, it should have been the MPs. Um, you know, that's kind of above our pay station. We're, we're there as a check and balance. Um, and we can do that in in lots of different ways. I mean, what's really interesting, whether it's over tax credits, when we sent that back to the Commons, or whether it's over Brexit, we have really strict rules about what we can and we can't do. We have a number of clerks, lawyers who were employed, who are very, very clear on the rules. And, you know, we we don't overstep the rules because then that actually doesn't help anybody. So um, it's a weird one. And and there are moments in time, tax credits, where people suddenly look at the House of Lords and say, oh, wow, you know, it's an interesting debate. What we do is we have time to debate stuff, which the Commons doesn't always have. And because we've got you know, more than 150 independents. We've obviously got the party peers. There is every view in the chamber that you could ever imagine uh, on on any subject that's debated. And and what I find is that people are generally, they listen to your debate, they listen to what you say, and they make a judgment. Now, some people I will never change their minds, and some people I will, but but they listen to the quality of the debate. And um, that that's important. I, I think we, we've got a PR job to do. We need to be better at explaining what we do. Um, you know, the reality is uh, there, there was um, a documentary on us recently where, you know, I'm, I'm not sure we came across in the best. Like, I don't think we showed the depth of what we do, how busy we are. Um, I think it showed us eating tea a lot. And, and, and yes, some people do have afternoon tea and a cup of tea and a piece of toast. I do. Because sometimes you can do more at the tea table than you can do in a committee. So, I mean, I've sat there recently. I'm doing some work on wheelchair provision. And I was sitting next to someone and said, right, 
you, you kind of do some stuff with the NHS, don't you? I'm trying to do this. Who do I need to speak to? And like, right, you need to speak to this peer because he did a review on that for Thatcher and you need to speak to this peer. And, and so you have this connection, you can make stuff happen. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we need to be better um, at explaining what we do. We've actually got a group of um, peers under 50. So we, we call ourselves Generation Xers. We've got our own WhatsApp group. And, um, you know, we're, we're really keen to, to get... We need reform, and, and the Commons needs reform. But um, I think people need to understand what our job is because I think then they'd have a better idea of, of what they can do to have an impact as well. Definitely. Uh, well, I, I think you explained that very clearly. And I also think that more things should be resolved over tea. Uh, I think we'd have a much better system uh, if yes. tea was involved. Um, but also, I suppose there's also the experience thing. Uh, most people in the Lords uh, have experience at what they're dealing with, whether it's uh, politics or like mm. in your case, it's sports. You know, there's uh, so that's, I guess, missing, not missing from MPs, but MPs, you say they have another job. So if nothing else, you're giving knowledge of experience, which is so very valuable. Well, I think how it works is that, you know, I'm not sure whether you call being an athlete a real job, but everybody who's in the Lords has done something else before they got there. So I'm I'm there to, you know, talk about my current experience. And, and you're still expected to be an expert in in what got you there. So, you know, I can't sit in the chamber and say, well, 15 years ago in sport, this is what happened. I need to be able to say last week this is what happened. Um, and so I, I wasn't involved in, in a lot of the debate around Brexit. I've got lots of views on it because I wouldn't say that's an area that I'm, I'm expert in, you know, so I probably wouldn't speak in the chamber. I wouldn't go and speak in the chamber um, about climate change, although I'm really interested in it. But you kind of sit and listen, you listen to the arguments and you you, you make a decision. So um, I'm not in there, you know, we I'm not in there to score points for how much I speak. I'm in there to talk about the things that I know about. And and when I first went there, it was really sweet. Someone said to me, oh, it's a bit like school. <laughs> and I kind of looked around at the gold wallpaper and all the oak panelling. It was like, well, it wasn't like my comprehensive in Cardiff. <laughs> but, but um, well, it is in that you, you go there and you're expected to learn and you're expected to use the library and to speak to people and to find out information and, and to be better. So, you know, that that's the, the expectation that's on you. So um, what what I would say is is the vast majority of colleagues I know there to take take it really seriously. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for your time. That was that was uh, fascinating. And I think also will explain to a lot of the listeners. I, I, I personally, I think that they're important. I think the importance has definitely been shown uh, in recent months, if not years. Um but uh, before uh, before we finish, I wanted to ask it's something I always ask all the guests on this. Um, other than yourself, uh, who would you recommend that listeners perhaps follow online or things that they find out about websites um, if they're interested um, in disability rights campaigning or in sporting investment campaigns or in fact any of the number of things that you you deal with? Uh, where would you recommend people look? So for politics, there's a couple of websites. We've got a House of Lords website. There's also um, theyworkforyou.gov, which you can find out what people speak on, what their interests are. Um, colleague of mine who's amazing, Jane Campbell, she's a wheelchair user. Follow her on Twitter. She is a total expert in disability rights. Um, you know, she's written all the books on it. Um, she's fab. Around disability rights, there's also Mick Scarlett, who's really funny on Twitter. Um, Liz Carr, who's an actress, Oh, yeah. uh, she's a disabled woman. She's really cool. She was a great stand-up um, as well and, for a while. Absolutely brilliant stand-up. Oh, she's brilliant. And um, she's she's on TV quite a lot. Love her to bits. 
Um, and then the organisation I chair is called UK Active, and we're on Twitter. We we talk a lot about being physically active, um, just thinking about the world in a in a different way. So um, yeah, the, there's some really good stuff. There's there's loads of information out there. Um, just go out and look for it. And anyone who follows me on Twitter, I am so sorry about how much I tweet about Trump. I'm really sorry. <laughs> But basically, I am never going to be allowed back in the States again. So I think, you know, what the heck, I'm just going to go for it. Thank you so much to Tani for speaking with me. Um, you can find her Trump smashing Twitter at Tani underscore GT. That's T-A-N-N-I underscore GT. And her website is at Tani.co.uk. Uh, the people she advised following are Baroness Jane Campbell, who's on Twitter at BNS Jane Campbell, uh, Mick Scarlett at M-I-K-S-C-A-R-L-E-T, and the brilliant Liz Carr, who is at the Liz Carr, C-A-R-R. Um, as always, if you have someone you'd like me to interview or an issue you'd like me to find someone to interview about, please do get in touch at Parpol Bro on Twitter, the Parpol Bro group on Facebook, partly political broadcast at gmail.com, or now it's spring, four large smoke signal wafts followed by three smaller ones, then two large ones, but make sure it's a clear day and you're not too close or it'll set my smoke alarm off and that bastard is so annoying to stop. This week, with George Osborne's new job as editor of the Evening Standard, I brought back the partly political question of the week and I asked you, the good people of the free world, and some of you, the bad people of the free world, but I'm not judging, what ridiculous second or third jobs could you see other politicians getting? At Princess of VP on Twitter said that surely Corbyn should have a regular slot on Gardener's Question Time. To be fair, he does keep digging holes for himself. Uh, at Magic Darts on Twitter says that all those identikit safe seat home counties Tories could set up an Uber style business to outsource and place pub bores. That is very true, although I can't see them giving themselves minimum wage. Um, at Unreal McKay uh, on Twitter says Jeremy Corbyn could try being leader of the opposition alongside his current role. Oh, burn. I should say a lot of these are about Corbyn or Boris Johnson, as you will see. Um, and I think Boris Johnson, to be honest, has has enough other jobs. Um, at SogGMac on Twitter uh, says Tony Blair as peace envoy not in a million years. Yeah, I mean I can't see that happening, mate. Uh, Michael Heseltine as part-time dog walker. I mean, to be fair, as long as it's not his mum's dog, it might be alright. Um, and he's got a lot of time on his hands right now. He could easily do it. Um, at Linda Heap says uh, she thinks Boris Johnson would probably make a good clown. Thing is, is clowns require, I suppose, a certain level of talent and skill to do what they do and also uh, some sort of inner pathos um, and I can never feel sorry for that twat especially if he was to fall over or get hit in the face by a pie at Matt Hoss Comedy says Trump essentially writes the onion oh god damn I wish that was where he got his new sources from um, Alex Grace on Twitter says Boris Johnson as foreign secretary oh hang on I mean generally we're all just uh, realising that a lot of these people shouldn't be doing the jobs they're already doing let alone other ones um, James Ross sent in loads uh, he put Philip Hammond as a Hammond organ salesman um, I mean he's quite good at blowing his own trumpet I'm not sure how he'd be on the keys uh, Michael Gove working as a conductor for Govia Thameslink no way as a ventriloquist yeah he's very good at making it seem as though he's speaking out of his face when it's actually out of his arse so fair play uh, Pretty Patel as the principal boy in any given Blackpool Panto uh, Diane Abbott as a Franciscan Abbott and Jeremy Corbyn as a beekeeper which might be an issue because he's not very good at hive mind um, and Nikki De Palma said Gove earning some pin money doing a bit of supply teaching oh wouldn't that be wonderful karma uh, but terrible for the kids um, Philip Alexander says 
George Galloway as a children's author, uh, which is again one of those frightening things because yeah, he is actually writing uh, children's books like called Red Maluka the Pirate or something. Uh, I presume it's going to have various phrases like and then Red Maluka saw the Kraken that had killed half his crew and said, much like he thought of a sad, aren't you a breath of fresh air? Uh, Mr. Dave Gill says, uh, well, Boris, Fox and Davis are doing a pretty good Three Stooges reboot at the moment. Uh, and we can always use May as a scarecrow on the cliffs of Dover to keep the Europeans out. But we couldn't use her on the other side of the UK to keep Trump out because she'd just roll over and make simpering puppy noises. To be fair, that could well be a second job. There's some people that are into that. Uh, at Kia Shields says, Boris Johnson to become executive director of Relate uh, and Jeremy Corbyn to be anything. Um, and at Budgie has sent again loads said uh, oh my heavens where to start Michael Gove to start in live action pod movie um, Boris Johnson to be stunt double for Trump hopefully there'd be a lot of dangerous explosions um, Philip Hammond to run Welkstall you know just to prove it one way or the other um, Jeremy Hunt ambassador to the Arctic uh, Corbyn doing the job that he has would be a fucking start McDonnell accounts clerk junior no more junior than that Nigel Farage speaking shit for a living oh no wait you said additional job well done everyone hopefully there shall be another question next week Brexit The triggering of Article 50 has a date, so let's all act like concerned parents and hope that date doesn't preempt a relationship full of broken promises and wasted time. March 29th, which is also adamant, outspoken Remainer and former Prime Minister John Major's birthday in the slyest fuck you from Theresa May I've ever seen. Yes, merely days after the clocks have gone forward, May will be turning them backwards dramatically more so and starting the process of the UK leaving the European Union within two years. So we'll have left by March the 29th, 2019. Though I can't imagine anyone will come to our leaving do or that we'll bother to turn up on our last day to train up Albania. Then a number of things will happen after March the 29th. Uh, from the UK's point of view, work is going to start on the Great Repeal Bill, leaving the European Communities Act 1972. Then turning thousands of EU laws into UK ones using 500-year-old Henry VIII clauses to change old laws that have already been passed in Parliament. They're called Henry VIII laws because the law has already been in Parliament, so now it only has to go through the government. It's a Tudor policy. D get it? N no, I know that doesn't really work. Shut up. This does mean Parliament doesn't get to scrutinise those laws, but it also means that it wouldn't take as long as if they did. And hey, why not rush reinstalling laws that provide the fabric of British society? I mean, what harm can that do? Meanwhile, the EU aren't really going to begin anything until after the French elections in May. Typical French making everyone wait. Huh. Then, all the EU will be negotiating with Britain about paying the Brexit bill that we've already agreed to pay but are now being shitty about, agreeing EU citizens' right to stay and British citizens' rights in Europe, and making sure Ireland doesn't all kick off with Northern Ireland. Easy, right? I mean, especially easy when David Davis told a parliamentary committee that he hasn't really got a clue about what will happen with any of it, no guarantees about anything, but that leaving without any deal is really not as frightening as some people think. Well, to be fair, when, like Davis, your hair resembles a cloud, it's quite easy to have your head amongst them. Boris Johnson also said a no deal would be perfectly okay for Britain's economy. Well, sure, but only if he has some sort of secret plan to keep churning out bullshit like that so we can use it as self-sufficient fuel. Lastly, the number of EU nationals registering as nurses in England has dropped by 92% since the Brexit referendum, with 2,700 EU nurses leaving the NHS altogether in 2016. Well, I suppose that does make sense. You know, I mean, many of those who wanted Brexit wanted it because they could hark back to the good old days. Well, to be fair, back in those good old days, tons of people died due to insufficient healthcare. So I guess we're nearly there. Nice work, everyone. 
and that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Um, thanks again for listening. Do drop me a monthly quid or two at the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or a one-off quid or two at the ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro. Uh, give us a review on iTunes, vote for the show at the British Podcast Awards site and hey, just think about the show from time to time when you're in the throes of passion. That's all I ask. Do drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Parpolbro group on Facebook, which, hey, I'm trying to post interesting things on, uh, including I posted today an article about French author Edouard Louis about the rise of the far right in France, which is really fascinating and not too long a read. You know, I, I can handle long reads, but I mean, like that piece the other day about what will happen when the Queen dies. Did you read that? It's called Operation London Bridge, which is a terrible name for plans for her death, as it means that they'll probably be horribly overcrowded and half the events won't happen in the first place. Anyway, uh, contact me on those or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. The podcast will return next week when I'll be saying welcome to episode 53 of the Partly Political Broadcast, because, you know, that's how I start every episode. Well, I mean, not every episode by saying welcome to episode 53 because only that one will be it look you get what i mean why are you making that condescending noise oh you're fine we'll be like that then yeah see if i care fine yeah fine go away bye this week's show was brought to you by the number six which is coincidentally the amount of jobs that george osborne currently has and also the minimum amount of swear words i usually use to precede his name Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.